Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Asim Malhotra is a controversial British cardiologist, public health campaigner, author and advocate against the use of COVID vaccines. He campaigns for people to reduce sugar in their diet, promotes a low-carb and high-fat diet, and encourages the reduction of medical over-prescribing. So that's the quick once-over to describe Asim, who joins us now from his, it looks like his study or office, because there are books in the background in London. Asim, welcome to Reality Check Radio. It's, it's great to have you. Delighted to speak to you today, Paul. Okay, so I'd like to look at the last two to three years, because that's what's on everybody's mind here. And with the bivalent booster being promoted in New Zealand um, uh, from the uh, 1st of April and quite strong promotion going into it, it, it's timely to talk with someone who's really been out there in the public space now, uh, openly talking about COVID vaccines, a cardiologist um, and a doctor with a long history and uh, plenty to his name. So when I like to start this way. When you look at the last period of time, two or three years, hard to nail down the exact period, big picture view, how would you describe what, what a lot of people have been through? We've all been through. It's a great question to start with, Paul. So I think um, many people, some people still, I would say are suffering from a form of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, at the very beginning, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Um, there was a, um, a concerted media campaign, uh, I think, at the very beginning, which uh, could scare people. Uh, that doesn't mean that COVID wasn't particularly devastating in high-risk groups. Of course it was. But I think there was a huge exaggerated fear for many people. In fact, only, um, only a couple of weeks ago, the Sunday Telegraph in the UK published a front-page story where leaked messages from our Secretary for Health during the time of the pandemic, Matt Hancock, revealed that there was an attempt to, in quotes, scare the pants off the public. That was a headline. And that's important to understand uh, for two reasons, Paul, because uh, you know, I, come, I come from this from an evidence-based medicine perspective. I'm somebody that's a big advocate for that, about informed consent, transparency, understanding numbers, reassuring patients. And... Um, the problem is that when you have uh, excessive fear like that, two things happen. One is you get a more compliant population. So that means the government has more control over the population when they scare them in terms of their, you know, what they're going to do next and you know, provide remedies, for example. Um, and that, that isn't necessarily always a good thing. You know, as Einstein said, the, um, a foolish faith in authority is the worst enemy of truth. So that can be a barrier to the truth. And the second aspect of it is if you're under a state of fear, Paul, then it undermines one's own ability to engage in critical thinking. And what that means is you are less likely to get to the truth. And, and, and certainly, just to summarize, I would say the last three years of the pandemic, whether it's looking at the impact of lockdowns, the use of face masks, and even the, um, you know, the, the vaccination campaign, including coercion and mandates, it, the evidence for me is overwhelming. The cure has been worse than the disease. People were saying that early on. I remember people saying that here. They were uh, gaslit into, you know, sounding like crazy uh, rabbit hole dwellers, et cetera. We've all heard that. Um, you mentioned those WhatsApp messages that reverberated around the world, that release of that information. So who are the good actors and bad actors 
rewinding to you know the generation of that state of fear etc or is it too early to tell i think um in some state in senses it's too early to tell paul but what i would say is um if you want to really get to the truth right now in the way that society is functioning and organized follow the money right you know what we have ultimately is very big powerful vested interests that are profiting even well before the pandemic from um, essentially manipulating information, whether that comes from the pharmaceutical industry, whether it comes from the food industry. Um, and we have this big problem of chronic disease. I mean, uh, in, in my lectures, I talk about the fact that in the UK, for example, you know, life expectancy has stalled since 2010. And in fact, more people are living with chronic disease, which means our health is getting worse. This is pre-pandemic. In the US, they've actually had a reduction of two years in life expectancy. So even pre-pandemic, there are many structural failures that are driving people's ill health. And what's happened is the pandemic has only exacerbated that, both in terms of, um, uh, I would say, a fast pandemic, uh, you know, exacerbating uh, or worsening a slow pandemic of chronic disease. What do I mean by that? I was one of the first early on to publicly speak out. And in fact, I even advised Matt Hancock on the links between obesity and COVID. And we know now that 90% of the deaths that happened globally from COVID-19 happened in countries where more than half the population were overweight or obese. This is something we could have sorted out much, much earlier on. And in fact, even during the pandemic, I know from my own research, I've published on this, I'm well known for this stuff, is that you can rapidly improve your markers of health associated with the immune system resilience with just in a few weeks of just purely dietary change. Yet none of that messaging was, um, you know, advocated or pushed for through government and certainly not uh, on a regular basis. I mean, I managed to get some mainstream media coverage in the UK briefly, but it should have been there from the very beginning. So there were so many problems in the handling of the pandemic. But I would say what's happening now is certainly when, when we'll come on to the vaccine, uh, we have. Uh, I think this is all the end result of increasing. I'm talking about the harms on the population, global health here increasing unchecked both visible and invisible power of big powerful corporations in particular pharma um uh, on the population over uh, and and which is detrimental to their health that means you know um pushing a narrative um that is uh misleading and results in people not getting access to the truth and uh subsequently a decline overall in people's uh, mental and physical well-being so the follow the money thing. So it's obvious kind of what the business model is, big picture for pharma. Are you saying that what happened with COVID was really just a continuum building upon that business model and and tweaking it for the next thing? Absolutely, Paul. You've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, just to give people one example, when you talk about who are the bad actors, certainly somebody who I think is probably one of the most influential and powerful people in the world is Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, many people may not be aware of this, but they can look this up, um, is heavily invested in McDonald's, Coca-Cola, mm. and pharmaceutical industry stocks. So it's estimated he's made at least half a billion dollars from his own investments in COVID vaccines and has been involved in influencing government and World Health Organization policy on COVID vaccines. So he's the second largest funder now, Paul, to the WHO. You know, I'm a big supporter of many of the things that the World Health Organization does. It's not all bad. But the overall net effect of the fact that, you know, Margaret Chan basically said that recently, the former director of the WHO said that 70% of his funding comes with strings attached. 
What that means is it's not independent. And I think the WHO, in terms of the way that it handled the pandemic and everything else, um, is just part of is is just a part of the problem now, not part of the solution. Because they, you know, many policymakers, organisations, charities around the world, politicians are essentially puppets of big, powerful corporations who often, not always, and this is evidence-based, what I'm going to tell you now, because I, I, I talked about this in my lectures. I this was referenced by Richard Horton in The Lancet, who attended my lecture in London. I've come up with a new term at the root of the problem. It's called the psychopathic determinants of health. What does that mean? It means that big corporations, often in their pursuit of profit, actually fulfill, as legal entities, I'm not talking about individuals here, as legal entities fulfill the criteria for psychopathy. And that isn't my opinion. That comes from the preeminent expert, forensic psychologist, Dr. Robert Hare, who actually says in the book, The Corporation, in the documentary, he was actually behind the original definition of psychopath, said that these big corporations, including Big Pharma, often behave like that. So when you, if you just take a step back and think for a second, if we have uh, an entity that is psychopathic in its pursuit for profit and has so much influence over our lives, even in clinical decision-making, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, Paul, that's going to have a very negative impact on our mental and physical health. And that's just the factor of the the, the corporate structure and the and the the shareholder demand and the wealth building produces that kind of corporate personality type. Is that what that it means? does? And I think people need to appreciate on that note, Paul, that you know these big powerful corporations. This is a legal problem, really. They have a legal obligation to produce profit for their shareholders. They do not have a legal obligation, if you look at pharma, to provide you with the best treatment. And the real scandals are that regulators, medical regulators, fail to prevent misconduct by the pharmaceutical industry, and that doctors, academic institutions, and medical journals that have a responsibility to patients and scientific integrity often collude with industry for financial gain. So psychopathy sort of reaches out to other areas potentially, because I was going to ask you about that. Um, you mentioned, you know, the um, dietary obesity factors in in COVID, and we've heard a lot about that. And and like you mentioned, there has been nothing whatsoever said at any official uh, level, political or, or health um, department or, or whatever institution uh, overseeing uh, our health that's never been mentioned. And people have been asking that question. Well, wh well, why not even talk about this? How do you explain that? They just didn't want to go there or, or there was such uh, a myopic view of, of only one solution being a vaccine because there are other treatments, therapeutics that were talked about as well, that people were canceled for and uh, doctors yeah. lost their registration for even suggesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's well, kind of crazy well, when you yeah, think about it. it. Is yeah, absolutely, Paul. I think it's multifactorial. So I think there are three main areas here when you think about the individuals who are influencing and controlling health policy. One is incompetence. Okay, This is people who are not actually looking at the totality of evidence. Hmm. A second aspect is conflicts of interest, which we've alluded to, and financial ties. For example, you know, one of the chief nutritionists of Public Health England a few years ago when I met her, when I had a conversation with her and asked her, about why, why uh, according to the NHS National Health Service Eat Well guidelines, but there's junk food on that on that plate, as in, and it's it's like you know sugary drinks and crisps and chocolates and cakes or whatever, and it's written next to it, eat less often in small amounts. So why is it even on there at the, in, in the first place? Clearly, it's a branding opportunity for junk food industry. 
And her response to me was, Asim, you've got to understand one of the biggest contributors to our economy is the food industry. So you've got conflicts of interest, you've got incompetence, and then you've got something which I think is really important, which uh, I, I think we need to reflect even in our own lives and, and our own, which is, it's all linked to the culture, is people who are not behaving in an ethical way. Mm. In, in the UK, we have something called the seven Nolan principles of public life. So these are principles that people who are in public life, specifically doctors, teachers, police officers, even politicians, you may laugh at this, should be adhering to in their conduct in their daily life because they serve the, the needs and the duty that you have a duty to the public. And those seven principles are selflessness, objectivity, integrity, accountability, honesty, openness, and leadership. And you know, when I look, when you look around and you look at our leadership and the people, even in medical establishment, unfortunately, I think many people are falling short of these, adhering to these principles. So if we were to actually approach this truly from an ethical perspective, truly from an evidence-based perspective, then we would have been much better off in a much better situation than we found ourselves in. And, and that's really at the root of the problem, Paul. So it turned out to be, what, an emotional response? Because it- Yeah, I think to some, to some degree it was an emotional response, but I think a lot of the policies were then exacerbated by powerful vested interests. So, for example, you mentioned about therapeutics, you mentioned about lifestyle. Now, what's really interesting is if we had managed to successfully implement public health messaging and even policies to curb people's consumption of, say, ultra-processed food and, and tell people that if you do you know, follow this particular diet pattern, which is it's essentially eating real food, it's not a fat diet, it's eventually cutting out all the junk for several weeks. Your immune system, you're going to be more resilient. One study suggested that vitamin D deficiency, severe vitamin D deficiency, was responsible for 80% of the deaths from COVID. Now, if vitamin D, for example, which is safe and cheap and effective, again, had been, you know, distributed very easy, just you just take a, one of those supplements every day and very quickly within a few weeks, you'll get your levels normalized. That would have probably saved God knows how many lives. But the issue then is this, if those were implemented, then it would have been much harder to get emergency youth authorization for the vaccine. Because it was, the narrative was this, that this is our solution out of the pandemic. When in fact, there were many other solutions that would have been safer and probably more effective, certainly more effective. I mean, we'll come onto the vaccines in a second. Um, and that wasn't implemented. So that is again, a combination of incompetence, lack of um, you know, uh, morality, lack of morality yeah. Yeah. and conflicts of interest. Because that figure, that you just gave there for something so simple to be sacrificed on the altar of how it went and turned out is just mind blowing, actually. Don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Paul, um, you know, the other thing that's happening in terms of moving forward is, uh, um, you know, this is this week, uh, you know, this is a land, a landmark case actually has been filed by international academics in South Africa and the High Court in Pretoria, actually looking at the totality of evidence and even some new analysis has actually suggested that the COVID mRNA vaccine, in particular the Pfizer vaccine, is neither safe nor effective. And I'm one of the key witnesses for that. Wow, because I was going to ask you that barefaced question, safe and effective, and you're saying no. Categorically, no. Um, I spent uh, just briefly on this um, 
just just to make people, you know, make make, make myself very clear on this, Paul. I'm an advocate for traditional vac- traditional vaccines. Okay, there mm-hmm. there is no for me. They're one of the safest pharmacological interventions in the history of medicine, and some of the most effective at preventing deadly diseases such as whether it's smallpox or measles or whatever. And um, of course, no drug or even vaccine is completely safe. But still, when you look at the overall rate of serious adverse effects, they're probably close to one in a million when it comes to traditional vaccines. I, on that mindset, um, did not believe or expect at all or conceive the possibility that any vaccine could do harm. And as a result, mainly because I did it to protect my patients, not because I was at particular risk, because you know, I, I, I took two doses of the Pfizer vaccine in, in very early on in January 2021. I then went on Good Morning Britain in the UK in February 2021 to reassure people. And at that stage in the UK, we were only offering it to high-risk people. I would never have suggested it for people who weren't high-risk anyway at the beginning, but it was only for high-risk people. And I reassured people that um, traditional vaccines are some of the safest. Yet I did understand people's hesitancy because look at the history of what pharmaceutical industry have been doing Mm -hmm. for years in terms of their fraud and the fact that prescribed medications are the third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer globally. You know, all of those issues were, were, were very prevalent before the pandemic. I've been a big advocate on this for years, trying to highlight these harms and excesses. But I didn't think a vaccine could do harm. And then lots of data started to emerge. Um, The first thing that happened, although I didn't at the time understand it, and it was only several months later in retrospect, I realized it was probably the cause, is that my father suffered a sudden cardiac death in July, 2021. My father was a vice president of the British Medical Association, very prominent, retired NHS uh, GP, uh, very proactive um, on mainstream media, social media, very influential. And um, you know, around the same time he had the vaccine, I had two doses of vaccine. We had a sudden cardiac death. It was unexpected. He was a very fit man. His cardiac status was excellent from tests we'd done only a few years earlier. And his post-mortem findings revealed two severe narrowings in three of his arteries, which is, again, didn't make any sense to me, suggesting something had caused a very rapid acceleration in heart disease, some factor. And I couldn't work it out. And I'm somebody that has researched mm-hmm. this, has published this, that's been involved in changing the paradigm internationally and around the world on the understanding of how heart disease develops and how you can prevent and even halt and potentially reverse it. So for me, I know this subject inside out and it didn't make any sense. And then what happened several months later, um, different bits of data started to emerge from different parts of the world. First and foremost, uh, um, a publication in circulation, a cardiology journal, suggested that the mRNA vaccines within a couple of months um, were accelerating coronary artery disease through increasing inflammatory markers in the blood, which are linked to heart attacks, right? Massively so. That was the first bit of data. Then I got told in the UK, we had an unexplained increase in heart attacks, um, about 25% increase in hospitals in Scotland. This is around October, November time, 2021. And then the third bit of information, which was the most troubling and most disturbing, is a whistleblower contacted me from a very prestigious uh, cardiology research institution in the UK and essentially told me that they had accidentally found that the mRNA vaccine was showing uh, increased coronary inflammation from heart imaging studies in the vaccinated, not there in the unvaccinated. But the research group, the lead research of the lead of the research group had decided they weren't going to publish their findings because they were worried they may lo- lose funding from pharma. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary. So for me at that stage, I then, you know, uh, there was a signal. There was enough for me to at least raise concerns. Um, it's my duty as a doctor to do that. You know, my first duty is do no harm. There's a, there's a potential patient safety issue here. So I went on, on GB News 
when I talked about it and I just said, listen, this, this needs to be investigated. That's all I said. That went viral. I had to cope behind the scenes with um, attacks from, in quotes, anonymous doctors to one very prestigious medical institution I'm affiliated with saying that I'm an anti-vaxxer spreading disinformation, which is just the most ludicrous um, smear I've ever heard in my life. Somebody who took two doses of the vaccine, who promotes traditional vaccines, who went on TV reassuring people I'm suddenly an anti-vaxxer. So this is just nonsense. So I had to deal with all of that behind the scenes, which was obviously stressful. I was still, you know, bereave, you know, still suffering from quite significant bereavement and my dad's loss. I'm sorry um, to hear about and, that, uh, by the way. Sorry yeah, well, that. you know, you, you grow and you learn from suffering. Yeah, um, you know, still, I think uh, oh, that's the way to look at it, you know. So I then decided I was going to critically appraise the data myself and publish it in a peer-reviewed journal. And in fact, the, the, the editor of the journal, Karen Zinn, is actually a New Zealand-based PhD in nutrition. We, there's a journal called the Journal of Insulin Resistance. I went for that journal for three reasons. One was it's not funded, but it doesn't get any money from pharma. Two, it was the only journal that was going to allow me to write 10,000 words because I needed to really talk people through the actual vaccine data, but also why we got it wrong, how we got it wrong, and provide solutions. And the third reason was that um, it was also open access. People didn't have to pay to read it. I wanted everyone to know about it. So it took about nine months from the initial conception and writing and the peer review process, which is extremely rigorous, before it got published. And the conclusions are very sobering and disturbing. Um, you know, the, the rate of significant harms from the original trials that led to the approval of the regulators uh, of the Pfizer uh, vaccine suggested more harm than good from the very beginning. You were more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from the vaccine, disability, life-changing event, hospitalization than you were to be hospitalized with COVID during the original Wuhan strain. And this is in a 40,000 people in the randomized control trial that actually are lower risk anyway to start with. So these are people who are less likely probably to get side effects. And even in those people, it was, it was more harm than good. Suggesting it should never have been approved for a single human being in the first place, Paul. And I That's stand incredible. by that. In fact, the, the evidence has actually got, uh, since that paper, the evidence has only evolved. And most, most recently, just to break the numbers down, because I think it's important for people to hear this. This is irrefutable yeah. facts now. UK government released data a couple of months ago looking at the benefits of the vaccine per million vaccinated versus per million unvaccinated. Are you ready? If you're over 70, the highest risk group, if you're vaccinated, it gives you a one in 2,500 chance. So basically you have to vaccinate 2,500 people to prevent one person being hospitalized with severe COVID. 5,700 if you're between 60 and 70. And if you're under 60, you're talking about tens to 20, tens to hundreds of thousands of people needs to be vaccinated to prevent one severe hospitalization versus a severe adverse event rate, Paul, of at least one in 800. And it may be as close to one in 300 based upon a survey published in BMC infectious diseases in the United States. Um, and in fact, that survey also, not high quality evidence, but still published in the peer-reviewed journal and definitely concerning. That publication suggested that the risk of death from the vaccine, as in the vaccine killing you, two doses of Pfizer, um, for example, maybe one in a thousand. And this is absolutely extraordinary. This wow. is horrific. Um, this is like nothing we've seen before. And I would say that it's the biggest miscarriage of medical science, maybe corporate crime, we will soon find out, um, that we will ever witness in our lifetime. So we went from one in a, a million, potentially, of the old style of vaccine over many, many decades to one in 800 potentially. Absolutely. It's probably higher than one in 800, probably worse than that, probably worse than that, Paul. Absolutely. 
Okay, so in the time that that you took the the jabs and 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 the medical establishment were recommending them to what you know now. I mean, that must have been a hell of a hell of a ride for you. Yeah, I think the ride was more in terms of me being. I, I became aware of it very quickly, and but the thing is, because Paul, I've been very deep understanding the structural failures for years behind the excesses and manipulations of pharma and over-medicated population, I was probably in a unique position to fully understand how this all happened. Um, I spoke in the European Parliament in 2018, and the, the title of my lecture was Big Food and Big Pharma Killing for Profit? Um, one of the issues and one of the solutions is that where people might be saying, hold on a minute, why should we listen to this Dr. Mal Hotford, this controversial British cardiologist? Why don't we just trust our regulators? So this is the problem. The regulators have been captured by industry. An investigation by the BMJ, people can look all this up, last year revealed that most of the regulators in Western countries, Western democratic countries, get their funding, most of their funding from pharma. So the FDA gets 65% of their funding from pharma. Um, The MHRA in the UK gets 86% of its funding from pharma. The TGA in Australia gets more than 90% of its funding from pharma. So these people are not independent. They're not, they're not independently, um, you know, what they do is they're selective, they withhold data, they're not rigorously analyzing the information they're given. And what they're doing is they're just trusting the conclusions that's given to them by the pharmaceutical industry, where the pharmaceutical industry have designed the trials, analyzed the data themselves, hold on to the data and keep it commercially confidential. So this is basically the, you know, corporate capture of medicine and public health. It's an absolute disaster, Paul. It's a public health disaster, I mean, that's an understatement. What we have done to the population because of these structural failures is horrific as an understatement, my friend. It's an understatement. But listen, moving forward, I think we need to offer solutions, which is drug companies shouldn't be able to fund the regulator. They shouldn't be, although they can develop products, they shouldn't be able to test them. They should be independently analyzed by independent researchers. Um, this is is regulatory failure and it's calming the population and uh, enough is enough. It's time to, it's time to, but you know, every New Zealand person or every New Zealander or anyone else listening to this, um, this discussion, um, you know, remember as Martin Luther King said, it is a moral obligation of every citizen to disobey unjust laws. And this is what we're dealing with. Um, I just want to pick up on the point you made just a moment ago. Um, Earlier vaccines, versus this vaccine and the use of the word vaccine to describe this this latest technology. Because uh, I'm listening to you there thinking, how could all these people, and even you said that, you know, I don't know if you kind of made an assumption that this will be like any other vaccine as we know it, and vaccines do this and that, and that's what we've always known. So, yeah, that sounds like it, it could fly. It turns out it wasn't anything like that. But using the word, the descriptor, is that what, well, I don't want to use the word fooled, but is that what eased everybody into assuming safe and effective, even the regulators, uh, right on down? Absolutely. I think you're right. I think there's been a group think. I think there is this assumption, certainly when you say vaccine, I was one of these people, Paul, I was one of these people who was, um, uh, you know, indoctrinated that when you think of the, when you hear the word vaccine, automatically what comes into your mind is safe and effective. So I think, yes, this is a new type of technology. It was rushed through. Normally, vaccines take five to 10 years of safety checks. It didn't go through that. We accepted it was rushed through because of the so-called emergency of the pandemic. So there was, you know, certain things were, there was a greater leeway given, I think, by both the public and by policymakers. 
um, because we didn't conceive of the possibility it would do harm. We weren't sure ex exactly how beneficial it would be. But certainly what we were told um, by press releases that hit the mainstream media, which were essentially just reproductions of, of the drug company's own press release, which were the mainstream media, media stories without any questioning that this is so-called 95% effective. We know that is completely false. Any, any person with common sense, certainly in New Zealand, knows that I'm sure that they, they realize now that it wasn't preventing infection, even though we were told it was 95% effective at the beginning. So it was very misleading. And then we would, and then people, the narrative changed. It's going to prevent you from severe disease, disease and death. Well, I've just broken we, that data down for you. Yes, we noticed it does, that. We but noticed it's so that. poor. It's so poor that um, in normally, in normal circumstances, that, that something like it should never have been approved for. This should never have been approved for a single human at all. And actually, my own analysis, and this is what is also going to come out in the court case, the cure has been worse than the disease. In other words, if we'd had no vaccine at all, we'd have less deaths and less people who are vaccine injured. Okay, For me, that, so is, that is the most likely scenario. This is how bad the situation is. I want to get into then what we're dealing with now because I think it's probably similar. I mean, there are the local nuances, et cetera, but it's similar around sort of like countries. Here, no one's admitting anything um, or, or they're minimizing it to such a, you know, um, a, a small uh, problem kind of uh, pitch. But the hospitals are maxed out. The ambulance services are maxed out. The cemeteries are maxed out. It just goes on and on and on. So it seems like some kind of tsunami. I don't know if it's presenting that way where you are. So it sounds like this is going to be a potential mega disaster of health. So are we in a situation where this can be dealt with? Yeah, Paul. So just to answer your question specifically, yes, we are seeing uh, in many countries around the world so-called unexplained excess deaths. Yeah. For me, looking at the evidence, it's clear that one of the primary factors, I won't say it's the only factor, but one of the primary factors behind these excess deaths is the vaccine. Yeah, because okay. it wasn't and happening we, before. Go back to, yes, this was not happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if people are saying this is, you know, this, what they're trying to do, there's, there's a, a, an attempt through the mainstream media fueled by pharma and, and this is not new they did this they did this before with you know when we were going through the whole process of understanding whether tobacco was a killer mm. um pharmaceutical industry paid scientists to publish articles in the mainstream press saying that heart, cigarettes weren't causing heart attacks it was stress so there's lots of stuff that's a deliberate pr strategy and distraction Doctors where they're trying to say this is because of this is because yeah absolutely they're saying this is because of covid when you look at the data severe covid of course we know was already worse than people predisposed to heart problems. And in fact, on, on people who were discharged from hospital, more likely to suffer another heart attack or have a heart attack when they were discharged. Um, but this is only severe COVID, people hospitalized with COVID. There is no clear association in people having mild COVID and any significant problems. And, and just very quickly, before in terms of the solutions, uh, Paul, what we need to be doing is that the mechanism of harm is that the spike protein, which we thought would be inert and just stay in the arm for a few hours and generate antibodies, uh, from the vaccine seems to be distributed throughout the body for several months in every organ system, the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, um, the ovaries, the testes, and either causes an acute toxic effect to those tissues or autoimmune reaction. It's an absolute bloody mess. You know, the World Health Organization, in, in my paper, which I wrote, I um, put a list in there for, you know, referencing another paper where they had endorsed, the World Health Organization had endorsed a list of potential serious adverse effects from the vaccine. 
and they endorsed that list when the vaccine was rolled out, but nobody knew about it. Doctors didn't know about it. It wasn't in the mainstream news. And on that list, Paul, every organ system is affected and anything and everything that go wrong with the heart is on that list. Heart attacks, cardiac arrest, myocarditis, rhythm disturbances, heart failure, it's all there. So this should be part of the differential diagnosis in every single person being admitted to hospital now. Did you have the vaccine? What did you have? And it has to be, it, there has to be a link made um, as part of the differential diagnosis as a primary factor or a factor in these problems. What do we do moving forward? Well, the first thing is there needs to be broad mainstream acknowledgement. The policymakers need to acknowledge it. The prime ministers of every country where this is being rolled out need to acknowledge it. The public needs to be told. And then uh, and maybe put their hands up and say, listen, we got this wrong. You know, we, we went with the best of intentions. I don't think there's any conspiracy here, Paul. This was not deliberate. This was powerful vested interests rushing things through, hoping for the best and realizing that there was a big problem, but then obfuscating that information, I suspect. And I'm talking about pharma here. But for everybody else, um, we went in and, and treated this with the best of intentions. And now we're realizing it's been an absolute bloody mess. And we what have to clean up that mess. What it did reveal, though, is a whole infrastructure of control, because that's what happened. That was just sitting there. It was put together very quickly and very cleverly, some would say. But there it is in plain sight. Instruments. Um, I've heard military grade used as a yeah. description that Absolutely. were deployed very quickly and in a cynical way, as we've found out now, with a complete suspension, I would say, of common sense. Um, yeah. and, and that is chilling. Okay. You might say it's. it's and, then, and, then, and, the, and the other issue as well, Paul, is that we've been, I've been speaking about this. I've, you know, I spoke in the British Parliament, I spoke in the South African uh, provincial parliament recently. Um, I've been getting this on the mainstream news at every opportunity I've had, whether it's Fox News. I even managed to, in quotes, hijack the BBC. I was going to ask you about, about that because I saw that. Uh, yeah. So, so you know, getting for me as an activist, you know, uh, I learned from people like Mahatma Gandhi, you know, if you want to create change, believing that most people want to do the right thing and most people are good, you make the injustice visible. That's how mm -hmm. revolutions happen. And we, we're talking about a revolution here in healthcare, and this is a symptom. This is the worst thing that we've ever seen of this corporate capture of medicine and public health. So that's how we deal with it. But I think one of the other issues, a psychological phenomenon, which is more important that we need to address and understand, is one of willful blindness. So when pe this is yes. when human beings turn a, a blind eye to the truth in order to feel safe, avoid conflict, reduce anxiety, and protect prestige and reputations. So the biggest barrier we have really, first and foremost, is a psychological one, because the truth and the evidence is very, very clear. Yet it's not strong enough for a lot of people to even take their fingers out of their ears and, and listen. I'm speaking with Dr. Asim Malhotra on Reality Check Radio. Dr. Malhotra, British cardiologist, public health campaigner, author, and now advocate against the use of COVID vaccines. I saw you on the BBC. I don't know the program. It was a news program, I guess. And I think you were there to talk about um, um, issues related to statins and people not taking their, their drugs. And and then you came out with that and it spun the head of the um, journalist or the presenter. They weren't expecting that. That was uh, right out of left field. Is that something that you had locked and loaded, ready to go? You saw an opportunity and thought, okay, when I get when I get the chance, I'm coming out with this. I know it's going to blow her off the chair and she's going to be, uh, 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 what, what, what. just tell us briefly about that moment. Yeah, I mean, Paul, I've been, you know, I understand the state's inside out for a very long time. And what happened was that they did call me from the BBC to talk about statins because I'm considered an expert, an independent expert on statins. 
you know, I wrote my last book was about statins, um, but also somebody that promotes um, lifestyle changes. And I yeah. was saying that, you know, for low risk people, we should be promoting lifestyle changes primarily, not statin drugs. That's essentially the message. Um, but actually it was relevant because there was this unexplained excess death. Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, only I think a, a week or two earlier had come out with a suggestion that people not taking statins with behind excess deaths, which was completely false. Well, it's a misdirection um, play, isn't it? It's, a, it's an obvious oh, misdirection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this for me, this it looks very, very suspicious. It looks very, very suspicious, to be honest. Like trying to push an alternative narrative which doesn't add up as a distracted. Um, but anyway, I just had to comment on my view of this, and I brought in the issue of the, um, you know, the fact that the, there's a likely contributing factor to the excess deaths because of the COVID vaccines, and this needs an airing. And then, of course, what I, as I expected, this is what happens. Uh, it's a marker of actually progress, Paul. People were very upset more than I was. Yeah. There were two hit pieces done on me, one in The Guardian, which incidentally, I've written 19 opinion editorials in the Guardian newspaper over years, some of them front page commentaries on all the issues, including pharma and obesity and that kind of stuff. So, you know, the moral of the story is there is that, you know, um, I don't know whether I should say this, whether it's about trusting journalists, but, you know, ultimately, you know, the story su supersedes values and loyalty or whatever else when it comes to journalism, unfortunately. Uh, it shouldn't be that way, but it seems to be that way. So there was a hatchet job on me in that which was, you know, almost laughable, including one of the cardiologists in, the, in my alma mater, Edinburgh, where I've been decorated and recognized for my work over the years, basically saying the chief of cardiology saying that he probably didn't know I was an Edinburgh graduate, saying that he doesn't have much of a cardiology career to speak of, and he's just an attention-seeking person in the media, something like that, along those lines. And then the, the Times newspaper actually did an article where uh, I had actually spoke in Parliament and, and, and influenced a very prominent Conservative MP, Andrew Bridgen, who then gave a speech in Parliament, which I helped him with, calling for the suspension of the vaccines. And they basically said that Tory MP was groomed by gang of anti-vaxxers, and I was well, I was a lead mm. gang member. <laughs> and they said that I'd compared the rollout of the vaccine to the massacre, in quotes, of six million Jews during the Holocaust, which I never did. So, you know, when you look at that stuff, and, you, and they're overreaching, but I think what's interesting, Paul, and reassuring, well, one is, you know, Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you then they fight you, then you win. So the fact that they were getting hit back, you know, getting these hits in mainstream is for me a mark of progress. I'm happy to take a few of those hits. I'm thick-skinned. Thick um, but also what's really interesting is when you look at the comments from their own readership, whether it's The Guardian or The Times, most of the comments from their own readers that subscribe to these papers are supporting us. Hmm. Do you think so they what read that means the comments? There's already, yeah, there's a disconnect here. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how things are in New Zealand, but... Certainly kind of the, the, the booster campaign, there was a very low um, uptake. You know, I was getting text messages still almost weekly from my own GP practice asking me to come and take boosters. And I thought this is extraordinary. But uh, I, and I know this stuff and I'm a doctor and I was obviously not going to go for any more, any more vaccines. I've been called for, I call for its suspension. But throughout the whole country, the uptake is very, very low. Less than 10 percent. That tells which suggests you something. People, people mm. are ignoring. It tells you a lot. And this is not good because, you know, when we make mistakes or if evidence changes, it's very critical to keep trust in public health that we admit those and we come forward and say, I've done that. Um, you know, the medical establishment needs to do the same thing because the longer they leave it for, the harder it's and the longer it's going to take to rebuild the system and to restore trust because trust is gone massively and irre wanted, irrevocably so. I wanted to ask you about trust. And uh I know what people are saying generally, but in my own experience, I was called up by my local medical center and 
you know, it was suggested that I come in and, and, and take the thing. And, and uh, I thought this will be an interesting little exchange, just very br- briefly here, um, that I asked, you know, uh, could you tell me what's in this vaccine, how it's made, um, what sort of uh, testing had been done, and um, and has it been officially signed off? And I got some sort of loosey-goosey, very general, but really didn't know answers. And uh, I specifically said to the lovely nurse on the phone, you 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 can't you're not getting me to the level of informed consent i've got to say so uh, thank you for calling uh, and before before i finished the call she hung up on me so uh, there's this complete dismissive kind of mentality running through the whole thing you're talking about um, some of the things that have been said about you it's pretty nasty now she wasn't nasty on the phone but once i had broached that she she was out of there she didn't want to to know anything so this whole thing of trust we've always trusted our doctors our doctor, our GP, probably the the most trusted person outside the family, usually. And it seems to me to be, well, if it's not now, it could be in tatters. That's a, that's a big problem, isn't it? How the hell do you work on that? Paul, it is a big problem, but I think that um, I think human beings can be very forgiving as long mm-hmm. as you're honest with them, you open up even better late than never. Yeah. And I think the sooner they get on with this and put their hands up and people need to stand up. I mean, doctors, there are a lot of doctors who are aware of this, but stay silent because they're scared. And the problem is that we haven't created an environment where it's safe to speak in healthcare because of these corporate structures or corporate power. It's infiltrated uh, even the NHS. Um, you know, I remember uh, when my dad died, the, one of the reasons that, you know, we uh, he had a cardiac arrest, it was witnessed and an ambulance was called even just when you had his cardiac arrest. So, he was in the best opportunity to survive because normally ambulance crews take about eight to 10 minutes. And uh, that's a national standard in the UK, Hmm. but it took 30 minutes. And then I did an investigation and then I published it in the I newspaper. It became BBC news headlines. And up to that point, it hadn't come out. And in fact, I was told um, from someone very senior in government that the, there had been a deliberate uh, uh, attempt to prevent the public and doctors knowing that ambulance delays had been going on for several weeks before my dad died all across the country. And if we had known that, it probably would have changed his outcome because we couldn't, wouldn't have called an ambulance. He would have been taken to hospital and would have got there and probably would have been successfully likely defibrillated from his cardiac arrest and be alive today. And when I wrote about it, I texted a very senior, one of the good guys, a cardiologist in London, I won't name him, and just said, I'm about to, you know, I'm about to uh, write this. You should be aware, blah, blah, blah. And his response to me was, Asim, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You're only going to make yourself enemies. And I want to help support getting you, you know, a job in the back in the NHS. And I said, what about our duty to patients? And there was just no reply. So, you know, what that tells us is that there's a cultural issue here. And um, it's been creeping up on us for a very long time. Um, we, we have to accept and understand often, more often than not, it's not safe to speak the truth. But it's even less safe to not speak the truth. Because the problem only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's actually because not enough people have been speaking out over the years about all the excesses and manipulations and research misconduct that goes in with the industry, which is massive, huge. Um, We are now dealing with the end consequences of essentially us not adhering to ethics and values and also not, you know, one of the most the most important virtue is courage. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. So we need people to stand up, um, if not for themselves, for their families, for the future of humanity and the future of our kids. Um, And uh, and right now, I understand in New Zealand, there is going to be a push to try and 
um, get people to take the bivalent booster. Is that right for, for people? Under- in a few days, April 1st, just so happens. Just April, say no. April Fool's this day. is my message. British cardiologists from the UK, unequivocally, don't do it. Just say no. Yet they're still promoting it, uh, Asim. They've got full-page advertisements going. Um, they're sort of making it a rah-rah affair. It's like they no one's yet reading the room. Yeah, it's sick. It's it's psycho. They don't know it. I'm not saying they're deliberate, but the 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 root behind all of this ultimately comes to the psychopathic determinants of health. That's what it is. So people need to understand that. Once they get that and they understand the root of the problem, then we can get closer to the truth. We can have more informed consent and move to a position where we have better quality care. Really, um, you know, in, in health in general, overall. I want to talk, and we'll we'll wrap up soon. It's been fascinating talking with you, Asim Malhotra. Um, the question of accountability, because that's inevitably going to come up. Either it never will or it will, big scale, big time. And people's lives, people's lives have been lost, and at quite a scale it, it could be. How do you say sorry for that? Well, we have to say sorry, Paul, to be honest. Um, we have It's a starting point. And in terms of accountability, I think what people want is they want to ensure that justice is done. Those people who are held accountable for this should be held accountable. And in this case, clearly for me, I think it is these structural drivers. It's a, it's a drug industry, okay, in particular. I think they're going to be the most accountable. And people need to feel that, like with anything like this, that changes will be implemented to stop this ever happening again. So this could be a watershed moment in the history of human medicine right now, right right this moment. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. History of the medicine, history of the world. You know, wow. this is also about democracy. Suppression of information is the opposite of actually a free democratic society, a society where people need access to the truth because without access to the truth or believing other people are speaking the truth, we can't trust each other. If we can't trust each other, there's no solidarity, there's no community. And society disintegrates. And the worst extreme form of that is you end up with violence. We don't want that to happen. That's my biggest concern. We have to stop that happening. I was in the United States and I spoke to my cousin who lives in Indiana uh, when I learned about all this stuff going on before I published my paper. And he was shocked with the information I was saying. And his concern, he said, I see my biggest concern. He said, we have guns here. We have guns here. This is so horrific. My biggest concern is people, when they realize what's happened, there's going to be violence. We have to stop that happening, Paul. Absolutely. We have to stop that happening. And again, on the the issue of accountability, justice needs to be seen to be done. There are some very high profile people uh, around the world involved in this. And and there'll be a lot of individuals who have have been hit hard by this in every way you can imagine who will want to see justice. So that's jail time, isn't it? Minimum. Yeah, well, Peter Gosher, the co-founder of the Cochrane Collaboration, said that when, it, listen, this is alleged or if, you know, the companies have been found to, without naming any particular companies, but COVID vaccine companies have been found to have committed fraud, then of course, yes. I think that there needs to be a situation where senior executives risk jail time and companies should go bankrupt. And I think that all the profits that they've made from these vaccines needs to go into compensating the vaccine injured families who've lost, lost loved ones, and also into, um, you know, uh, research for treatments for vaccine injured as well. 
without the acknowledgement, there is we're, we're missing a trick here in this public health crisis in how best to manage people who are vaccine injured as well. You know, I'm being doing that myself and seeing patients and doing my best in first do no harm and focusing on improving their lifestyle and all these sorts of things, because some of the vaccine injuries are related to uh, chronic inflammatory or inflammatory effects of the vaccine. And one of the antidotes to chronic infl inflammation in general in the body is lifestyle. That means, you know, healthy diet, exercise, meditation, that kind of stuff. But it probably will need some other therapeutics that we're, you know, we still don't fully understand what's going to work yet. But we need that acknowledgement, then we can devote time and resources and money. Uh, and that money, I think, should come from pharma. I mean, they are, it's very clear that they misled us, you know, irrespective of whether ultimately they're found to have committed fraud, which I think is, is very plausible. Um, you know, they, they misled us. And I think, you know, governments shouldn't have given them immunity. Many governments around the world gave them immunity that if people were vaccine injured, they wouldn't have to pay damages. The exception to that, though, Paul, is if they have been found to have committed fraud. And I think the circumstantial evidence at the moment suggests that that's what's happened. Okay. And last question, trying to look ahead. Uh, I guess we really don't know. But uh, in terms of numbers, okay, we've, we know roughly, and you say it could be worse, there's you know a ratio of vaccine injuries, et cetera, and, and death um, that we we kind of getting our arms around. How big this could this be? I mean, you probably can't, with any sort of clarity, sort of look too far forward with a great yeah, deal of focus. But how how big could this be over what period? Oh, wow. Uh, I think it's already big. It's huge. Uh, the estimates from the paper published in BMC Infectious Diseases from the survey in the US suggest there may be as a, a, up to 1 million people in the US who've suffered, a, in the US alone, suffered a serious adverse event in 2021. That's, that, that's now. That's in the short term, right? But That's right now. The longer term issue for me as a yes. cardiologist specifically uh, are twofold. One is that, the, um, that because of the acceleration of coronary artery disease, I think we may see, I hope we don't, but we may continue to see for years excess coronary artery disease deaths, so people dropping dead from heart attacks that carries on for years even after you've had the vaccine. The other issue is one of cancer. Now, I was uh, gave a talk in Aberdeen, Scotland a few days ago um, with uh, a very eminent international oncologist called Professor Angus Dalgleish, based in St. George's Hospital in London. And he, uh, and he was giving mechanisms of harm, but also saying anecdotally, there's been a huge increase in people relapsing or having lymphoma and also melanoma. And he said, but I suppose one reassuring bit is he said this, well, it's not none of it's reassuring, but just to be more precise, he said, this seems to be an issue that happens specifically after the booster. So not after two jabs, okay. where there's an immunosuppressive effect and that is instigating or you know maybe causing or exacerbating people with cancer. So I think this is a real, real problem, but we need more information. We need to get to the truth, but it starts with saying, you know, the New Zealand government prime minister need to put their hands up immediately saying we've got a massive problem here. We need to stop this vaccine. We need an investigation. We need to help the vaccine injured and we need uh, to access the raw data so independent researchers can quickly analyze and say, yes, it looks like this has caused more harm than good and we need to stop this ever happening again. Asim, here's the problem. The current prime minister was the COVID response minister through all of this and led the whole thing. Do you think there's a snowball's chance in hell of him coming out and saying things like that? <laughs> you know, absolutely. I think people would trust him more if he says that, you know, he got it wrong. 
and this is what he believed. I mean, listen, I, in, in many ways, I was in a similar position. Okay. I didn't have that much influence and I wasn't certainly mandating, or in fact, I helped overturn the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers in the UK. At the very beginning, I was. Our one is still going, by the way, sorry to jump in, but our mandate is still in force. Yeah, this is sick. Listen, let's remember one thing, Paul, the real power here is with the people. It isn't with the governments. It's us. It's about unification, solidarity, connecting and you know, rights are only won by those that make their voices heard. There are many, many voices that haven't come out yet. A lot of people kind of instinctively know there's an issue. But if the New Zealand population and people got together, even in their thousands, um, this would stop immediately. It's been really interesting speaking with you. Great to meet you and to have you uh, meet our audience. Not directly, but they've been listening to you. There's a lot of very useful information in there, and it's Kind of really interesting to hear somebody who was like right in it as it happened. And w- would it be fair to say that you've been red pilled? I hear that one quite a bit. Is that is that what's happened to you? <laughs> um, yeah, red pilled. I think me become awake. Um, yeah. I think to some degree, Paul. But I was on this about ten years ago, right. and I actually campaigned privately and publicly. I tried three times and got it in the mainstream media, the Guardian, the Daily Mail, the Eye, front page of the Eye. Uh, I even called in the last uh, one of the last articles I wrote for The Guardian. I called for a public inquiry. I said in a, on a scale of um, the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war, this issue of pharmaceutical industry corruption, influencing and damaging patients is so huge. It needs that kind of level of inquiry. Yeah. And that was 2017. Okay. So I was red pilled about 10 years ago. But specifically with the vaccine, this COVID vaccine issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just for me, it's just an evolution of that. But yeah. temporarily, of course, I was, I wasn't, I didn't think that, you know, it's not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We do lots of good things in medicine. And I thought that all vaccines, including this one, would be one of the best things that we could do. Um, but we, you know, absolutely, we got it wrong. And um, uh, many of us were deceived. And, uh, you know, uh, and again, I don't think it was a deliberate uh, act by anybody, even Robert Malone, one of the co-inventors of the technology behind the COVID vaccine, took two doses of the vaccine himself. Yeah. Well, what happened yeah. was he had made the presumption, I've met Robert, that what he, you know, and originally was involved in the uh, production of, which needed a lot of work for if, before it was going to be used in this way on humans. He had presumed that work had happened and that things had, uh, had been, you know, and many people, I think, also thought that. But as soon as the evidence becomes clear and the evidence changes, we have to act on it. And to not do that, when people are contacting you and policymakers and telling them um, is criminal negligence. And that's where we're at right now. Dr. Asim Malhotra, you heard what he said, beaming in from London on Reality Check Radio. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.